0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. Let's go again. Perfect. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic facing humanity in more than a century.
1: One year in, and we are still looking for the light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Models and data have played a very crucial role in this response.
1: In this special podcast series,
0: we'll be talking to our fellow researchers from NSAC
1: at the Biocomplexity Institute, University of Virginia.
0: The team has been tirelessly supporting COVID-19 response in the U.S. at the local, state, and federal levels. And in this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Samad Swaroop about synthetic populations and how they support computational models of societies. Hi, I'm Sreeni Venkatraman.
1: And I'm Erin Raymond. Let's go talk to the COVID COVID chaser.
2: Hi, I'm Samar Swarup, and I've been with the group since uh, the fall of 2008. I like to think of it as the time when I had hair and they were all <laughs> black. And now I don't have hair, or what's left is all gray. So that's how long I've been with the group. Um, and I work on the synthetic populations here. And I work on making large agent-based simulations and doing behavior modeling and uh, simulation analytics and applying machine learning and AI to all of those. And not just for epidemics, but in other contexts too, like disasters or spread of technologies, things like that.
1: Yeah, because your background is computer science. That's right. Right. Yes. you just kind of fallen into this epidemic work. I'm guessing it wasn't something you sought out. No, and
2: and when I came here, I didn't even realize that was the main thing. Um, But I knew that what uh, the group did was uh, very data-driven and uh, did large-scale simulations of things, uh, interaction-based computing. And those were the things I was familiar with. I wasn't really familiar with the application domain. I had to learn that once I came here.
0: Sure. (laughs) Yeah, especially if I recall, uh, I think we, when we were speaking with Madhav and Stephen, they were also mentioning like the, the technology that we have predates uh, its applications to epidemiology. Epidemiology was just, I wouldn't say an afterthought, but like once you had it built out, you were trying to see like uh, which domains can it does it best suit, uh, and then like you, I think the the group narrowed down like a few, and then epidemiology is one that has grown and especially become very relevant. Yeah.
2: Like uh, you know, with hindsight, everything's obvious. With hindsight, it seems like the most natural application of this technology of, you know, what happens when people interact with each other. That's really important from you know so many different perspectives. Well, right. public health.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I think like uh, what we wanted to uh, touch upon is like maybe uh, even before going into the three populations, uh, can maybe uh, also describe how you've been part of the COVID response over the past year and also. Uh, What are the challenges and uh, things that you've encountered uh, in terms of technical over the past year?
2: Right. So uh, I've been working with uh, a few things. So building out synthetic populations, that's, of course, a broader exercise. Um, And I've been working with mobility data. So I think that this is one of the interesting things that has happened with, you know, the modeling and response for this epidemic, as opposed to ones even a few years ago. So this year, this time, we uh, had much more ready access to the uh, epidemic data itself, like case data, right? And uh, even a few years ago, like with Ebola, that was hard to come by. Uh, Getting it in machine-readable form was nearly impossible. We had to do all that ourselves. But this time, right from the beginning, case data were quite readily available. They were still noisy, and they had all kinds of problems with them, but at least we didn't have to spend like weeks just gathering the case data, right? right? Um, so that was really positive. And the other, I think, uh, really interesting innovation that has happened from the perspective of modeling has been the use of mobility data. So data from uh, cell phone planes or, or uh, other ways in which it's gathered uh, has been sort of the new component of uh, the modeling that many different people have done. to try to understand population mobility, because ultimately it comes down to uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions, because we didn't have a vaccine for a long time. So it's all about trying to limit our mobility, limit our interactions, limit the probability of transmission when we do interact and so forth. So mobility data are very helpful in understanding how much are people interacting, how much are they uh, reducing their mobility, increasing their mobility, to what kinds of activities and so forth. And uh, so we were fortunate to get access to some of the mobility data and uh, I've been part of the group that's been studying those data as a Srini and some other people. Right. Um, So that has been really interesting. And the other thing which has been a long standing interest of mine is behavioral modeling. So understanding how people make decisions about what to do and how do they actually go about doing them. um, That remains a challenge. So uh, you know, with mobility data, you can get pings from people's cell phones and it's, you know, a passive kind of data collection that you can do on a large scale. Now the technology exists, but with something like, are people wearing masks? Are they keeping physical distancing while interacting with people? Uh, things like that, there is no ready way to access the data. And in fact, we didn't even know what was the right kind of behavioral data to gather right. when the epidemic right. started, right? And by the time that became apparent and by the time people you know, designed surveys and got them through IRB and deployed them and collected the data, it was September. Right? And the first, like, you know, first major wave of the epidemic was already passed. Right. Uh, right. And all these you know, interventions that had happened to try to get people to wear masks and you know, work from home and things like that had already happened. And we don't really know how people responded behaviorally to that so that that has been a big challenge and i think it will remain a challenge uh, until and unless some other technology comes around that allows us to collect those data much more easily yeah. but we have to keep in mind the privacy aspects of it right so we have to keep in mind ethical means of data collection and data use and that's going to be a big challenge too
0: yeah i think uh, you've touched upon the the different aspects that people used to think about like it'll come five years from now ten years from now but suddenly maybe the pandemic has accelerated all of this uh, both technology wise but also uh, as uh, fast track this discussion about ethics and privacy and data sharing maybe uh, hopefully after everything is done like people might look back and see did we do things right or should we I mean there is one which is more in the fog of war You are trying to respond to something and then People might go back to the drawing board, but still learn from those lessons. And uh, yeah, so one thing that you brought up uh, so, uh, tying to this privacy angle. So we have this case data, behavior data, mobility data. Each by themselves is already very sensitive because if you have entire medical history of someone, you can give very targeted interventions or suggestions for that person. But once you start coupling that with mobility, which are traces, and then you start asking what what did you eat? eat or like, what did you wear a mask? Did you go to this? Uh, gathering and then uh I think synthetic populations as an idea uh, has been explored in terms of games people have i mean i wouldn't they were, they didn't call it synthetic populations but they, you had uh virtual uh entities or agents and uh, uh, you can interact with them or even play as one of them and uh, so maybe you can talk about like how both of these like when synthetic populations were first envisioned uh, maybe. There was some foresight on like, okay, we'll get all these data sets in the future, but also without that, it, they serve a very useful purpose. So maybe you can talk more about. Uh... Yeah, so I
2: think the, the concept of synthetic populations is actually very interesting. And you know I, I particularly like it because I'm a computer scientist and it's really a computational perspective. It's not a statistical perspective or a mathematical perspective. Synthetic populations are a way of doing computations. And the idea goes back actually to economics, strangely enough, <clears throat> because uh, fairly early on, and I want to say this was in the 50s, somebody proposed that the way to understand uh, the economy is to uh, make models of individuals and how they are you know, interacting and, and uh, buying and selling and so forth, right? And uh, at this point, it wasn't conceived of as you know a big data structure that you would run a computer program over, but the idea was there. And uh, um, it, I think sort of grew from that. I don't know if this particular paper or this idea influenced uh, Chris Barrett and Dick Beckman and others when they came up with their idea of a synthetic population uh, when they were at Los Alamos uh, working on uh, transportation. Uh, so, to me, that's, you know, maybe an independent start to this idea. They, they were the ones who really implemented this idea first. Dick Beckman and uh, a couple of other people have this uh, really well-cited paper on how to take census data and create a, a collection of agents from it by disaggregating it. It's called creating synthetic baseline populations. Uh, really nice paper. And uh, so, um, Chris and others uh, were developing this uh, transportation modeling system called Transims at Los Alamos. And they were interested in uh, traffic on the roads. And uh, so imagine this problem, right? You want to know the traffic on all the roads at all the time. Okay. Now, today, this sounds like your quintessential big data deep learning problem, right? Uh, Which is, let me, you know, put video cameras on all the intersections, and I'll get a huge number of video streams, and I'll uh, put it all on my, you know, servers and, and run this massive deep learning thing, and I'll figure it out. Okay, that's that's what somebody would think today, but the thing is, um, two things: one is that they were thinking about this in the early '90s, and two. Even if you could do that, that doesn't tell you what you really need to know, which is things like, well, what if we put another stop sign over here? What would happen, right? So knowing what the traffic is, is just the first step towards what you really want to do. And what you really want to do is typically figure out what you should do, like answer counterfactual questions, right? So their big insight was that if you want to know the traffic on the road, you have to solve a bigger problem, which is why are people on the road? Most people are not out joyriding, right? Uh, They're on the road because they're going to work or going to school or going to the grocery store or whatever it may be. Um, So this bigger problem was one that they felt that they could actually solve by combining the uh, existing kinds of data that they could get. And once they could solve this problem, it solved a lot of other problems, So it pointed the way at least. So now you could say, well, uh, you know, what if we gave people Fridays off? Right. Right. How would that affect yeah. the traffic on the road? Right. So people wouldn't have to go to work, but probably people would take advantage of three-day week and then do all kinds yeah. of other things. Right. So um, so if you model people's demographics and activities. Uh, and you have a good model of, you know, locations like the built environment where roads are, where stores are, where residential areas are, and so forth, you end up with this construct, which we now call a synthetic population, or people are starting to call it a digital twin, that actually is very powerful. It allows you to answer lots of kinds of questions, not just about traffic, but it turned out about infectious disease, about the economy, about disasters, and a whole lot of other things. So that's where is, you know, this is my understanding. That's where synthetic populations came from.
0: In fact, like I think uh, you make an interesting transition from like observing something and then trying to do counterfactuals. In fact, like in the sociology, again, like you can do observational studies, uh, you can recruit some people or do some surveys. But then if you want to really understand, I mean, you can even ask, what would you do if something happens like this? But usually, uh, the behavior may not uh, uh, reflect what they answer in the survey, like when it actually plays out. So you need some more detailed understanding of how they make those decisions, and even beyond that, especially if in, if it involves populations, uh, they may interact in very complex ways. So you need some way of connecting them beyond analytics. And in fact, like I mean, just as a anecdote, like uh, last year, like around October time frame, I was reading this book uh, by Jill Lepore. Uh, called If Then, and uh, I don't know if you've read it, this is about uh, uh, Simulmatics, a corporation in 1960s, which was uh, uh, doing, uh, I mean, a lot, I mean, it's it's eerily similar to basically building synthetic representations. Uh, You can make it analogous to something like synthetic population, but also uh, the more closer analog would be something like the Cambridge Analytica kind of exercise where you have data on, at that time, they didn't have that much data, they had only aggregate data but they were trying to do election analytics, but going down to like individuals trying to represent uh, different uh, community identities or collective identities and trying to see what kind of messaging should be done in this particular speech to, can we nudge this population? And it's a precursor to a lot of these ideas, like uh, to just test them out. I I think a lot of it was more analytical at that time. Uh, And I think, uh, uh, so analytical in the sense, they were trying to do very simple if-then kind of right. computations. That, uh, like, then you have something that uh, the synthetic population brings it much more computational in the uh, true sense of it. And uh, now, like, with big data and deep learning, you're also seeing that emerge. Uh, I wouldn't call it as a parallel wing, but like it, it starts complementing the way we uh, encode some of these uh, entities. Erin, uh, uh, you want to go on to the next question? Uh, uh, I mean, we, we'll keep talking about technical stuff also. So.
1: I know. No, th- no, that which is all good because the synthetic population really is at the heart of a lot of the work that we're doing. Um, can you, so you have been with the group for a while. You're used to being in this team environment. Millionaire. And guess. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> and being able to, um, you know walk down the hall to come by my office and say hey let's go for a walk because it's nice outside and we can't do that anymore so right. how have has that impacted the work that that you're doing how have you felt that change
2: so it's it's been a complex time so it's not a simple answer right um so you know, in some, it's in many ways, it's actually been really good. I've been, uh, I feel a lot more productive and efficient. Right. And the reason for that is, you know, don't have to spend time driving to and from work and things like that, right? I can get up and be on the computer and have meetings early or late or whatever I want,
1: right? right.
2: But it's also been very busy. Uh, so, weird thing about the perception of time, right? Like, uh, because the brain doesn't have a clock, it basically counts events, right? Okay. And so like if you're a kid and you're, you know, sitting around on a summer afternoon with nothing to do and you feel, oh my God, it's dragging so much, cause nothing is happening. And then in the evening you think back and say, where did the afternoon go? It's like, it's just morning right now. Right. It's because there were very few events and while you're experiencing very few events, you feel very little time is passing. And when you look back on it, and if there have been very few events, you felt like it went by very quickly. And the opposite is also true. If you're very busy, it feels like time is passing by very quickly. And when you look back on it, you feel oh, my God, like before that was so long ago because so many things happened. And that's been this year. It's been really busy. And I feel like how long ago was like February of last year? I don't even remember it anymore. (laughs) Yes.
0: yeah, I read this tweet which said like, how is it that 1990s is 10 years ago and so is March 2020.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, but
2: I also feel like it's gone by really quickly. So it's it's been weird. There have been so many uh, changes just you know, in, in work habits and so forth, um, some there are stretches where I feel like from morning to night, I'm in front of the computer and I take like five minutes and literally I just scarf down some lunch and that's about it. Right. And like, I don't go out. Like I was telling you last time we spoke Aaron, when I went outside to hand my wife something in the car and I was like looking around like, oh, the outside, I've forgotten what this was like. It's so
0: nice. It's basically Truman Show, <laughs> crossing the yeah. threshold.
1: Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah yeah but
0: uh, i think like uh, the other aspect is also working with the team uh, i think uh, we've all had to adapt uh, our ways of like we don't have bumping into each other uh, at coffee uh, or coffee or uh, at the puzzle desk or any of those uh, so how how have you uh, managed like in terms of interactions with colleagues or project mates i think uh, external collaborations were always right. remote mostly but especially with close collaborators inside the Institute and also especially students. Uh, so how has it been? And in- So
2: in, in actually on balance, I would say it's actually been really good. So what happened, it took some adjusting, right? Right. but what happened is that I meet with the students more frequently now, especially with some of them. Like I have an undergraduate student and I talk to her every day, even if it's for five minutes. And that's been really good for her, I feel, because she feels much more focused, like she knows what she's doing every day. And yeah. uh, I give her some feedback every day. And so she's more productive. She's learning more and so forth. And I feel like, you know, more work is getting in that uh, done in that project. And uh, with colleagues, I have started to have... Uh, um, either regular meetings like once a week where we just meet to talk about projects in general, so it's not about any specific project, or I have reached out to other colleagues or they have reached out to me saying here's this new thing I want to do, are you interested, let's talk about it. Like with Anila, I've been talking about this AI for social good and we've been talking to some NGOs and you know I don't know if anything will eventually come from that, but it's a new thing an interesting thing which we were able to do despite being remote all the time. Right. So right. it has taken some adjustment, but I think on balance, it has worked out remarkably well.
1: So what would you say looking back have been the the high points or the low points? And that can be personal, professional. Um, you know, for me, the a low point has been not being able to see my colleagues and friends, right? I, I mean, I consider everyone in this group to be my friend, and not being able to to be with them, uh, as an extrovert, I get my energy from, I get recharged from even just sitting in the room with someone, right? That's, that's recharging for me, and I have not had that. Um, so, what kinds of highs and lows maybe have you experienced?
2: So, one of the highs definitely is that I feel I'm in better health, mm. really, yeah. uh, And it's because uh, I was able to get the right kind of physical therapy and my back is so much better. Uh, I can just do all the normal activities one should be able to do without right. back pain. And this was something I thought would never happen. I, I thought, you know, it's just all downhill, but no, uh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, so that has been, you know, just on a personal note, that has been a huge positive for right. me this year. Um, in terms of work, I think the work, you know, has uh, it's been very challenging. But this epidemic and responding to it, I think, has really pushed us to a new level in terms of the kind of work we're doing, the you know, the ways and the extents to which we're collaborating and the. Uh, uh, level of sort of challenge we're willing to take on as a group. And I think that has been really fantastic to see. It's, you know, it's sad it has to come out of a tragedy like this. But I think that we have stepped up magnificently. And and I'm really happy with the way things have gone in terms of us coming together and working on it.
1: Yes, it's kind of, it's confidence building, I suppose, right? This is, I think of the folks in the military who train, 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 and their whole careers maybe, they'll never put that training into action. And I kind of feel like that's what we've been doing, right? We've been prepping. I mean, we absolutely have materially contributed in other pandemic situations, other disaster situations, whatever. But this is kind of new and uh, very, every week we have these deliverables that we're giving to policymakers on state and federal levels. and. We're, we're putting all that training into action, which is, you're right, absolutely. That is a high point.
0: Yeah, and especially, I think, uh, uh, is it Mohamed Ali or Mike Mike Tyson said, like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. So <laughs> I think to some extent, yeah, I mean, the pandemic has been kind of like a gut punch for almost like right. a global response. Like We've had a lot of pandemic preparedness and learning from past uh, experiences but I think it's uh, it's brought a lot of things to fore. So uh, maybe uh, since we talked about counterfactuals, maybe just doing a counterfactual, if you went back to 2020, say February 23rd or Jan 23rd, when the first few cases were known, uh, what is one thing that if we had known uh, at that time, it could be a tool, know-how, or something about technical or non-technical uh, that would have helped us go through this pandemic or like come out, uh, Slightly better than where we are right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I wish we had behavioral data from day one, um, because mm. ultimately that's what drives uh, epidemic outcomes. Uh, that's the only uh, class of interventions that's available to policymakers for a new epidemic. The whole population, I so everybody has to come together and and adapt and behave uh, in ways that reduce the epidemic, and uh, I would say we still don't have a good understanding of that. And it's going to take a lot of work to develop that understanding and a lot of data. And I feel like if we had had that data from day one, and I I realize it's impossible because we didn't even know what was the right kind of data to get, but maybe for next time, right? Right. Because there will be another epidemic. But now we know uh, quite a bit about what are the kinds of data we would need. uh, And we are also figuring out ways to make use of it. So one of the interesting challenges has been, you know, we make these epidemic simulations, how do we make them so that we can, you know, use the disease data and calibrate on the disease model and use the mobility data and calibrate the mobility model and use behavioral data and calibrate that, do it all at the same time and have it all make sense. That's a really interesting technical challenge. So that's something we've been working on.
0: Yeah, especially people have talked about how, I mean, at that point, is it even a simulation or is it something that's in sync with reality and you still need something that can do counterfactuals but uh you wanted to somehow like be in sync uh, and so i think you uh, you had a really nice article which uh, i think was it real real life life simulations or maybe you can talk yeah about- but
2: henning and i wrote a paper called live simulations where we suggested this idea but i think you know mother was already talking about it with real-time epidemiology of the expeditions grant Hmm. Uh, so I can't take credit or at least not full credit for, for that one. But I think the idea of life simulations has been around and we're, we're far from having that yet, but maybe not as far as we thought we were, it's a matter of now, uh, learning how to make updates to the simulation in, in real time to be able to keep it in sync. Hmm.
0: And yeah, uh, I think, uh, even in a recent discussion, we, we were talking about this notion of synthetic senses because uh, just like you have real world sensors like mobility and behavior before we even understand how to integrate them. Since we have synthetic representations, we might as well put sensors which mimic our sensing system, because that's one thing that we don't understand really well. How long does it take for someone getting tested at a pharmacy and case showing up in your surveillance? And so even those delays and all the procedural information that's in the surveillance or sensing system, I think it's worth modeling as a uh, as an outer shell to our complex simulation because then you'll get to a point where you can start matching them uh, closer. Uh, so I think, yeah, it, there's, a, there's a lot of challenges, but I, it, it's also, uh, I think this is, as I said, like it's, it's fast tracked the start process because it, it can't wait for another 10 years. Uh, That's right. Yeah.
1: Right. For sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Samar. Um, we hope to record future episodes where we'll get a little more technical um, and we can go into a little more detail with you on the synthetic populations or other work that you're doing or whatever other topics you might like to chat about. Cool.
2: This was yeah. fun. Thank you. Rob. Yeah.
1: yeah, thanks. All right. All right. We'll see you soon. Yeah. All right. That's it for this episode of COVID Chasers. Subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, go to our website biocomplexity.virginia.edu forward slash NSSAC or follow us on Twitter at UVA underscore NSAC. Stay safe and see you next time
0: on the next episode of Jesus.
1: Uh Once a pandemic hit, it wasn't the time to scramble and, and to do this, it was because things were already in place. In some ways, you don't separate your personal and your work life. They are so intertwined, even more now than before.